0: Well, I invite you if you'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians chapter four, we're going to be looking at uh, verse two and particularly one, one word in verse two, I'll explain more on that in a little bit. Don't worry, we, we will get through Ephesians. We're, we're going to make it to the end of the book. So Ephesians four, we'll read uh, verses one through six and then consider uh, that one word in verse two, uh, Gentleness. Before we read the Word of God and consider it, let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we uh, believe that your Word is living and active. You tell us it is, and it's powerful. Every word of it, every sentence, every paragraph, every book, the whole thing. And we thank you that it's written not just by men. Whom you appeared to and told what to write, but that it's written ultimately by your Holy Spirit, the one author who brings everything together and points us, all of our gazes to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who told us that's what the scripture is about. And so we rejoice and we're thankful that we can, week in and week out, uh, take a look at what it is that you call us to, that we can be reminded of how we're called to live and, and be reminded of this great salvation that you've called us into. So as we take a look at gentleness, at meekness, what it means and, and where it is that we can find it and, and attain it, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives to convict us of sin, and also to comfort and encourage us by what Christ has done for us, and then also to strengthen us, that we might be, might be a people who are gentle, a people who are meek as we live before you and live around others. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Ephesians 4 at verse 1, I therefore I draw your attention just to verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, just that word, gentleness. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts. Beloved uh, people of uh, Hope Reformed Church and everyone with us here this morning. I'd like you, for you to imagine with me, if you would, uh, just briefly, that you've just graduated high school or college. You graduated at the bottom of your class, and you're looking for a job. And you know it's a long shot, but you have this tremendous interview with a company you'd love to land at, and the interview went well. And to your surprise, you actually got the call. They hired you. Unbelievable. It's a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I wonder how you'd show up to work uh, the first day that you were there, if you'd show up grumpy tired, hung over from doing too much of the wrong thing or whatever. I wonder if you'd show up that way or if you'd show up exhilarated, excited, ready to go, uh, eager to figure out what what is it you want me to do. I'm, I'm here. This is my dream job. I'll do this for the next 50 years if you let me. I wonder how you'd show up. And my guess is we'd show up excited. We'd show up ready to go. We probably would have slept 12 hours on Saturday night and probably 15 hours on Sunday night just to make sure that we're ready to go. Clothes all laid out, lunch packed. Off we go. Let's make the best of this opportunity. And we'd be asking our first step inside the door, what do you want me to do? What can I put my hand to? Beloved, salvation's a lot like that. You and I weren't just bottom of the class. We were dead in our sins like every other human being. And God looks upon us with mercy. We have no chance of getting in unless he's merciful, unless he's condescending in his love and in his grace. And to what should be all of our surprises, Uh, astonishment of astonishment, marvel of marvels, God calls us into a relationship with him. Sinners like us, born under his wrath, conceived in guilt, he brings us into a relationship with himself, and when we show up on the first day of this this brand new life, what's the question that all of us should be asking? What can I do, Lord? (laughs) This is amazing. You mean mean I'm in your household now? You mean I'm a child of yours? I, I was dead. I hated you. I couldn't stand your guts. That's how I was conceived and you've given me a brand new heart and you've passed by so many people and you've looked with mercy on me. Why? Lord, before we even get to that, just what do you want me to do? And I'm glad you asked would be what the Lord says. I'm glad you asked what, what you want me to do. Here's what you can do walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. That's what Paul's transitioning into. Well, what does this look like to walk worthy of our calling? Well, with all humility, and then secondly, with gentleness. We looked at humility last time we were here, uh, noticing that that uh, Christian humility is just embedded in what it is to be a Christian. Humility is. Christian arrogance is kind of an oxymoron. But if, if you notice the word all, why we're spending so much time on humility and meekness, Paul says, with all humility and gentleness. The word all actually modifies both in the verse two, all modifies both humility and gentleness. And I'm going to use meekness instead of gentleness. I'll let you know in, in just a little bit. Some translations have meekness. I think it's more helpful, but without getting caught up under that, I want us just to notice a few things about meekness, uh, because it's so important. This is part of uh, what it is to walk worthy of our calling, not just with humility or meekness, but with all of it, all humility and all meekness. What is meekness, number one? What does it look like? Why is it important? And how can we get it? Okay, those four things. What is it? What does it look like? Why is it important? And how can we get it? So first of all, what is meekness? I want to begin with what it isn't. Meekness is not a type B personality. that's what the world will tell us it is. In fact, I'm pretty sure if you look at a dictionary, you'll come up with something like that. What is meekness? Being laid back. Letting things roll off your back. It's type B personality. Go with the flow. Don't let anything bother you. And the type A people, they're not meek at all. They're just, they're trying to to, to slam their agenda into the world. They're very aggressive. They're not gentle at all. So be type B. Be that sort of personality. So if that was what meekness was, then everyone who's born the a type A personality could just throw in the towel and be and be rightly discouraged in this life. And all the type B's would be like, this is easy. We're good to go. I don't I don't need the Holy Spirit. This comes natural. So beloved, what meekness is not is a type B personality. Here's what it is. It's the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5.23. The fruit of the spirit is gentleness, is your translation of the ESV, or meekness. It's a fruit of the spirit. So notice it's not the fruits of the spirit, it's the fruit, one fruit. So every Christian is filled with the spirit to bear this fruit of meekness. Every believer, no exception. In secular usage, this word, uh, Prouse. well, we translate meekness was used to to describe the taming of wild animals, particularly horses. It was used to describe to, to calm those that are irritated. It was used to uh, for friendly composure, which does not become embittered in suffering. It was used by sailors to describe a gentle breeze, and it was used to describe soothing medicine in secular usage. Now, there's two characteristics in every one of those things I described that are really a part of meekness. Number one, Power, tremendous power, tremendous strength. Medicine is incredibly powerful. Beloved, it's incredibly powerful, which is why if we overdose on it, it's usually lethal. Uh, Wild animals are incredibly powerful. Wind can destroy, as we know from the recent training, wind can destroy tremendous things when it is unleashed. Irritation or anger can be tremendously destructive. But beloved, imagine each of those things brought under control power controlled power channeled power that is brought under the control or the regulation of something wild animals tamed incredibly useful medicine in the right dosage incredibly healing people who can bring irritation and anger under control and channel it tremendously useful beloved and wind controlled wind oh on a hot summer day it's it's immensely useful it's amazing Brother, what's going on with meekness is these two things. It's power under control. It's strength, internal strength that's regulated. And I want to just throw out really a a working definition that we're going to use to, to describe what meekness is. It's this. It's inner strength that comes from knowing who God is and how he works inner strength that comes from knowing who God is and how he works. That's expressed in these ways, contentment with God's will for our lives, patience in severe difficulty and suffering and a gentleness and boldness toward others. So my meekness is very hard to define. That's a, that's a huge definition. Let me mention it one more time. It's inner strength that comes from knowing who God is and how he works. And outwardly it's expressed in contentment with God's will for our lives patience in severe difficulty and a gentleness and a boldness toward others. So what does this look like? I think maybe one of the best helps for this, we'll look at it in David and Moses in just a minute, but one of the best helps is maybe the beatitude, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. In every beatitude, what's interesting is that uh, the promise given to those who are blessed, fits the bill. What do mourning people want? They want to be comforted, right? What do meek people want? What do they want to know? They want to know this. You know, Lord, I've been run over my whole life. I'm submitting to your providences. You've not made life easy following you, and you don't promise that it will be easy either. I look at plenty of people thriving around me, and they don't know you. They can't stand you. And they're getting their piece of the earth in their bank accounts, lands, you name it. Names all over the place. And that's just not characteristic of my life. What do you meek people want? They want to know, Lord, someday will you give me the earth? Will I inherit anything? Is this life worth it? So, beloved, what does meekness look like? It looks like this that our lives are not characterized by trying to get as much of this earth as we can but our lives are characterized by this. We will one day inherit the earth. So when the here and now, I don't have to be concerned with this. Imagine you can just get this off your to-do list, wherever it is, and get it off my to-do list too. I've got to go make the biggest impact in the world, make the best name for myself, get as much money and prestige and power as I can in this world. Wipe that off your list. Why? Because it's all coming to you in the next world. Because you'll inherit the earth. Because everything that Warren Buffett has, you'll have infinitely more in the next life. Hard to believe, isn't it? Everybody's chasing after a small piece of the world, beloved. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give you the whole thing as soon as Christ comes again. But you're going to inherit the earth. The whole thing's yours. (laughs) Have at it. Serve me in it. Whatever this looks like, beloved. I have no idea. Beloved, the whole earth is going to be ours. What is meekness then? Being content with our station in this life, knowing God will more than make up for it in the next life. So relax. Not... Type B, relax, <laughs> but find contentment and peace in where God has called you in this life. David modeled this actually um, by not killing Saul when he had the opportunity in First Samuel 24. He was praised for his meekness, really, because he didn't take over Saul. Now, any type A, which David was, would have just said, "Oh, well, I'm going to kill him right now. Here we go. <laughs> Instead, he just lops off a corner of his garment and, and later just shows him this that's meekness, beloved. That's, that's a resting in God's providence. The Lord hasn't told David. the Lord's basically saying to David, not yet, wait for it. Not yet. And so David acknowledges Saul is the anointed of the Lord. And I need to honor that this is the Lord's choice. And so David waits for it. Moses, what characterized Moses? An incredible leader looked Pharaoh face to face. I don't know about you. I wouldn't want to be the one to go into Pharaoh's court. Who knows what would happen? That's a tremendous trust in God, isn't it? God will protect me, or maybe I'm going to walk in there and give my neck. Moses did risk his neck for it. Tremendous leader. He'd look the people straight in the eye. He'd call them to, to repentance, call them to turn around as well. And yet we're told in Numbers 12, 3, that he was the meekest of men, the most meek man to have lived. Beloved, people who are Angered by every nuisance, every inconvenience, that, that's not meekness. You think of Proverbs sixteen thirty-two. What does it look like? He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit is better than he that takes a city. Think about that. Someone who can rule their own spirit is better than Napoleon. How does that work? Who's your favorite commander, favorite military commander of all history? Someone who can rule their own spirit, a meek person. Proverbs is saying is more powerful than that individual. Because you can go sack a city, but try and exercise control over your own heart. What does this look like? It looks like Proverbs 51, a soft answer turns away wrath. Being able to provide someone a soft answer rather than just a type A one. Oh, here, I'm going to throw this back in your face. A meek person can provide a soft answer. A.W. Tozer, Put it this way, the meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he's long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. The meek man is not a mouse uh, afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than angels. In himself, he's nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And he has stopped caring. He'll be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He's willing to wait for that day. In the meantime, he will have obtained a place of rest for his soul. As he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over. He has found the peace which meekness brings. Beloved, that's what it looks like. Contentment with where we are in the Lord. Peace with what God has called us to. And a great patience in difficulty that is willing to wait knowing, look, who is God? He's incredibly good. He loves his children in Christ. The cross proves it. How much does God love you? Would you give your only son to go die on the cross for wretched people? Who can't Of all people in, in world history, who do you hate the most? Who do you not like the most? Who do you wish was never born? Would you send your child to go die for them? Probably not a chance. Beloved, God sent his only begotten son to die for wretched enemies like you and me. He has proved he loves you. He has proved he cares for you. There's nothing more he can do. (laughs) How much more could he do? He gave all of heaven, as it were, emptied it and brought Christ to us. He's proven that he loves you immensely, incredibly. So beloved, in light of that, we can wait. God's good. He's going to bring heaven coming. I can wait for him. He's doing this for my well-being. Why is meekness so important then? Why is it so important? It's important for a few reasons. The first is just kind of right embedded like we looked at last time in the passage. Church unity. That's the first reason it's so important. Paul spent uh, largely uh, most of chapter two talking about how the middle wall of partition has been broken down by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles who hate each other, who'd rather kill each other than fellowship in the church. They're not going to sit down at a fellowship meal. They're not going to be in fellowship groups. They'd rather just pick up guns and just have target practice on each other. That's what Jews and Gentiles wanted to do. No, no kidding. That's not an exaggeration. All throughout history, that's what they're doing with each other. And Paul says, look, that middle wall between the two of you is broken down. You need to learn to get along. And he's going to walk into one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Unity, beloved, inside the church. That's what God is looking for. What are one of the keys to it? Humility. We looked at last time and now meekness. It's absolutely essential to church unity. What do you suppose it'd be like to be inside of a church, hypothetically speaking, to be inside of any church with people, Christians, who are empty on the inside and thus, impatient with God's providence in their lives, wanting to have things their own way and harsh and critical. What do you think it'd be like to be in a church with people filled with that, the opposite of meekness? Well, it'd be a nightmare, right? It'd be a horrible, that, that, that church of 100 people would soon be 100 churches of one people. That's what would take place. It's not possible, beloved. Meekness is required. If church, if churches are to be unified, Locally, You can think of right of in the churches that you're members of. Whatever church we're a member of, beloved, if there is no meekness in the hearts of people, then it can't get along. And notice it's not type A or type B. It's not just, oh, well, churches are filled with people who just let everything roll off their back. And so those with strong personalities get their way and everybody else kind of rolls over. That's not meekness, beloved. Meekness is tremendously strong. Very bold. Paul was meek. Christ was meek. It's not, it's not type A either where we just roll over everybody. <laughs> Loved meekness is simply, look, I'm content with what God's called me to. I'm at peace with that. I'm at peace with who I am, with who God has made me. And I'll wait for him to vindicate me on the last day. I'll wait for him to vindicate all of his people so I can be gentle toward other people. And I can be patient in the midst of things. Meekness, absolutely essential to church unity. It's also essential to evangelism. First Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and respect. Or gentleness is how it's translated, but it's the same word, meekness. Uh, how, if, how, do you expect, how would we expect God to use our witness? Telling others who don't know him about Christ. How would we expect God to use that witness? If, if we just look at him and laugh, oh, you're, you're one of those unbelievers, right? <laughs> oh man, it really stinks to be you. Do you know what's coming after you die? Uh, that, that'd be the total opposite of meek, right? The total opposite of humble. It'd be us looking down our noses at people without realizing that there's no reason why we shouldn't have traded places with them. No reason whatsoever. Zero reason, beloved. Except God has been gracious to you and not yet to them as far as we know. That's the only reason. Meekness will approach people content in our own skin, but boldly telling them, look, I want to tell you where bread can be found. You've got to be hungry. I know you're hungry. The Bible tells me that you're hungry. I would be hungry too. Here's where you can find bread. Here's where you can feed your soul. When, we're, when we evangelize, when we tell people a reason for the hope that's within us, we need to do this with meekness. We're called to do it with meekness. It's also important for rescuing a fellow believer who's caught in sin. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him meekly, gently, meekly. I don't know if you've been caught in a sin or if you've wrestled with uh, things of, of that nature and someone's had to approach you and say, Look, you need to turn it around. I don't know how they approached you if you were. But here's how we're called to approach one another with meekness. It's being content in our own skin without a point to prove, patient with how God may work because we know who he is and we know how he works. That he doesn't work when men are just going to be proud of themselves, but he works by his Holy Spirit using weak means and humble means. Knowing who he is and how he works, we can approach each other and say, look, I'm no different than you are. I maybe don't struggle with this sin, or maybe I do, but but I I see in your life, a place that needs to be turned around. And I see it in my life, plenty of other places too. So how can I pray for you? How can I help you? How can I come alongside you? How can we do this together? Beloved, that's meekness. If, if we come to people and say, look, I see you're caught in sin. I, I, I'm just going to start telling everybody about it until you finally give in. Or, you know, what a wretch you are. What's your problem? Just just be done with it. Get over it and stop it. Beloved, that's not meekness. That's the total opposite. That's, that's us injecting our own personality, our own wishes into the mix. Beloved, restoring people inside the church, which is, which is a weekly battle. It's a weekly battle. We're all doing it with each other, probably with our friends in small ways, probably with our family members in small ways. Maybe they're big ways, but, but most of the time it's just small ways, right? We sharpen each other without even knowing it so many times. Beloved, meekness, kindness, meekness really as it's expressed in gentleness toward others because we're, we're strong on the inside because we know who God is and how he works, and so we can be gentle toward others." And maybe the most important way, I shouldn't say that, but another way that, that it's important is for perseverance. You know, in the Old Testament, the word meekness is used most often to describe those who are going through tremendous affliction and they're waiting on the Lord. Let me read Psalm 37, 7 and following. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. Then Isaiah 29 verse 17. Is it not yet a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Beloved, in that day, in the day when Christ comes the first time with these prophecies, but ultimately in the second time as well, that's when the meek are going to be rejoicing, beloved. So how do we persevere with meekness? Lord, I know how you work. I know you're good and i know your ways your ways are now is the cross later's glory your ways are now we go through beatings persecutions adrifts at sea like paul that we go through persecution and trials and tribulations to enter into the kingdom of god we go through those things before we get to heaven that's part of life beloved so meekness understands that so i don't know what trials you've been through i don't know what trials you're going through but none of it's wasted beloved None of it's unimportant. It's all given to us by God to get us to focus on the next life. Like Calvin said, every one of our trials in this life is given to us to wean us off this life and prepare us for the next. To finally get our gaze off this life. Lord, I need a perfect life now. Well, then then don't become a Christian. Lord, I want everything to be pain-free. Then don't trust in Christ. Because Christ promises there will be difficulty and pain. God chastises the children he loves beloved pain is for our good it's horrible but God knows it so many times pain suffering trials they bring us really close to the Lord and as hard as it is it's always fruitful in our lives even if we don't fully understand it so what have you been through beloved what are you going through it's for your good it's for God's glory don't hang your head as if well God hates me no actually it's proof that he loves you He's not going to let you persist in sin. He's not going to let me persist in sin this way. So beloved meekness, it's, it's important for perseverance. Waiting on the Lord. Lord, I'm crying now, but I'll be singing in heaven. Lord, it's difficult now, but I'll be singing when I arrive in, in, in the new Jerusalem. Lord, help me to bear the cross every day and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I know that someday you'll more than make up for it. Well, how do we get this meekness? Matthew 11, the Lord Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek. Same word. Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Then in Matthew 21, 5, 10 chapters later, we read this, behold, your king is coming to you meek and mounted on a donkey. Meek, beloved, Jesus himself is meek. He had inner strength, didn't he? That comes from knowing who his heavenly father is, how he works, and it made him patient in the worst of difficulty. Did you see Jesus growing impatient? No, not even close. Patiently waiting with what God is going to call him to knowing full well the cross is coming. It wasn't easy. It's not like because he's 100% God along with being 100% man, two natures, divine and human. It's not like because he had a divine nature, all of a sudden this is painless, beloved sound like all of a sudden Christ just snapped his fingers. Well, I'm going to check out of my human nature and just kind of soar above in the divine. No, oh, fully human knows exactly what it is to suffer. And here's what he knew. He, here's what he knew about the Lord's will for him. It was his will to crush him. Isaiah 53:10. Jesus knew it. It's the Lord's will that I'm going to be crushed. He's born with this information. It's the will of the Lord to crush me. That's how God's going to work. And so Jesus is patient in it, content at peace with it. He knew this going into it. He knew it. he felt it. John twelve twenty seven. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He knew the, the word hour in the gospel of John means the, the moment of the cross. He knew his hour was coming. He's speaking of his death. He's not going to say, Lord, save me from this hour. He's not going to take his personality and say, well, I'm going to get my way out of this. I'm just going to fight through this. No, he's at peace with it. He knows this is the will of the Lord. He knows how God works. Jesus knew that God's design for his life upon earth was this. You're going to go down into a world that can't stand you. It doesn't look at anything like we originally created it. It was all made through you. But after Adam and he fell into sin, it's gone to total pot. This world's a horrible place. You're going to go down into this world and you're going to be born looking just like these people except you're not going to sin at all. And you're going to live among them and they're going to hate your guts. And you're going to find a small band of disciples but even in that small band of disciples there's going to be one that ultimately is going to betray you. And your life is going to be filled with suffering. They're going to want to kill you. They're going to betray you. All your disciples are going to flee and you're going to stand in front of people and get trials that are horrendous. In fact, the people, the prosecutors know that there's nothing against you. So they're, they're scheming behind the scenes what they can make up against you so that something can stick. So that they can finally kill you and get you crucified. And even Pilate said, look, he's innocent. Said it twice and it didn't matter. Jesus is standing there, beloved, in our place, knowing exactly what's going to happen. He knows it. He knows this is how God's going to work. And he stayed. He didn't go anywhere. And he walked all the way up Calvary's Hill knowing full well, there's no way out of this. But this isn't even the worst. I'm bleeding. They're pounding nails into my hands. They're mocking me. They're pulling out my beard. They're spitting on me. And I'm the scum of the earth now. But in just a moment, I'm going to be credited with every single sin of every single person whom I'm going to save. Every one of them. And I'm going to be treated. Like I am the most despicable human being that's ever been born. Like the ugliest thing before my father, he knew it was going to happen. He who knew no sin became sin, beloved, and he became it. And God's justice against our sin roared against him and it didn't stop. There was no let up. There was no mercy until finally every last one of our sins, sins that you commit and sins that I commit have been paid for. And then finally, there's the cry, it's finished. (laughs) Beloved, that's meekness. Not trying to weasel our way out of things, saying, Lord, I'm tired of doing it your way. I'm going to do it my way. But Lord, this is your way. Then give me strength to bear up underneath it. Then give me a vision of something greater that's yet to come. And then I'll go through trial and difficulty here. And if you give me this inner strength that comes from knowing how you work, that it's often through pain and difficulty that you work. It give me patience to bear with it and strength so that I can be gentle to other people, not having to run over them, not having to be mean to others, not having to be cowardly either like a type B, but I can actually, because I love the Lord and I know how he works, I can boldly tell others the truth. I can boldly call brothers and sisters in Christ to, to repentance and I can be content and at peace with who I am and the Lord and what he's called me to. Beloved, I don't know what you're going through. But we can know this. God is kind and loving toward all of his children. He loves you. He loves me. He's proven that in Christ. He uses pain and suffering to advance his kingdom. He uses pain and weakness and trials and suffering in your relationships, in your work, in your relationships with your neighbors, in your physical health, in your mental health. He uses weakness, pain, and trials to advance his kingdom, to save many and to grow us into the image of his son. We can also know this, this world is not our final destination. That's how God works. He's got a bigger plan. So when we're going through this pain and difficulty, we can know it's for our good somehow, even though we might say, I have no idea how Lord, but it is for our good. And ultimately, it's going to end in perfect glory where there's no more pain, right? That's what heaven's about. No more pain. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more mourning. No more death. It's all over. Perfection and bliss. Therefore, because we know that's who God is and how he works, we don't have to be king of the hill in this life. We don't have to be king of the hill in this life. That's that's meekness. Tremendous inner strength that is now gentle and kind because we don't have to be king of the hill in this life. We know because we're co-heirs with Christ, we'll all be kings of the hill in the next life. Let's, let's pray.